0: I'm Mary Byers and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is Steven Shapiro. He has presented his perspectives on innovation to audiences in over 50 countries and I'm delighted to have him here today. He started his work in innovation back in 1996 when he created and led a 20,000 person innovation practice for the consulting firm Accenture. He's the author of six books, including Best Practices Are Stupid, which was named the best innovation book in 2001. His latest book, Invisible Solution, contains 25 lenses for reframing and solving difficult business problems, especially during these challenging times. His clients include Marriott, 3M, P&G, Microsoft, Nike, and NASA. When he is not on stage speaking about innovation, he is practicing his not-so-slight-of-hand magic on his family and friends. It is my extreme pleasure to welcome Steve Shapiro. Hey,
1: Mary, it's uh, good to be here, and sorry for f- throwing the not-so-slight-of-hand into the introduction. thats I know that is a mouthful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I stumbled over it, but we made it. So delighted to have you here. As you know, I work exclusively with associations. Who are being very, very challenged in these times, but I really wanted to bring your for-profit experience to the not-for-profit world, and so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Before we talk about your current book, however, I'd like to ask about one of your previous books, Best Practices Are Stupid. That's just such a great title. Where did the idea come from, and what's the main message of that book? So Best Practices Are Stupid, which actually
1: came out in 2011, not 2001, so it's a little more recent than that, was a way of pulling together everything that I have been doing in the world of innovation into one book. So it dealt with everything. It dealt with culture, dealt with strategy, dealt with measures. And the title of the book, although it's provocative, it wasn't originally the main topic of the book. What ended up happening was I was working with the publisher. And if you work with a traditional publisher, they own the title of the book. And I gave them literally 99 different titles of which they didn't like any of them. Oh my. So they were going to go with a title that they wanted to use, which I did not like at all. We were going to press about a week later and they said, here's your last chance. Wow us. And I said, how about best practices are stupid? The line went dead and everybody's like, okay, we'll go with that. <laughs> so that's how the title came to be not as sexy as maybe it could be but it's a really just great way to challenge our assumptions is really what it comes down to is we like to follow what everybody else is doing i know associations are always interested in what are other associations doing and that's great for being able to replicate what somebody else is doing but it's not necessarily innovating the way you do business
0: i would absolutely agree with that and if you are using a group of non-innovative organizations to benchmark by then you're innovating your benchmarking, non-innovative groups rather than innovative groups. So your current book, Invisible Solutions, 25 Lenses That Reframe and Help Solve Difficult Business Problems is different than best practices. How so? So the
1: new book focuses on one thing and only one thing, how to ask better questions as a means of developing better solutions. The biggest mistake that I think a lot of companies make when it comes to innovation is they think that they need to come up with lots and lots and lots of ideas but all that does is create wasted energy. What they need to do is spend more time thinking about the problem. What's the question? What's the opportunity? What's the issue? What's the challenge? And spend time not just saying, okay, this is the problem we're gonna solve, let's go solve it, but then reframing it, rethinking it. And the book has 25 different ways, 25 different lenses for reframing problems.
0: One of the things I love about the book is that you've actually organized those lenses in a way that is easily accessible. So if I have a challenge that I'm working on and I'm stuck somewhere, I can actually pull one of those lenses or multiple lenses to go back and help jumpstart my thinking. And I think that's a real valuable piece of the book. How did you come up with the lenses and how did you categorize them?
1: So what happened was when I submitted the manuscript for Best Practices are Stupid, soon after people who read the early versions of it came back to me and said, hey, this is a great book. And we really, in particular, like the concept of asking better questions as a means of driving solutions, but we have no clue how to do it. You told us what to do, not how to do it. And so it was 10 years ago I started actually cataloging different ways to reframe problems. I've cataloged over 75 of them by now. Not all are great and not all are universally applicable. So when it came time to write this book, I chose the 25 that had the greatest, most universal application that could be easily cataloged and categorized into useful buckets.
0: I want to emphasize for listeners how user-friendly this book is. I have it on my desk. It's within easy reach, and it is a reference and a resource that I'm going to highly recommend in my work going forward. So it's much appreciated. You have a framework in that book called Challenge-Centered Innovation. Tell us a little about what that is and how it works. Sure. So the traditional
1: approach that most organizations use is what I'd call idea-centered innovation. It's all around the idea. So, if you're an association, you might ask your members, you know, how can we improve the association? If you're a company, you might ask, you know, what ideas do you have for new products or new services? Obviously, everybody these days is asking the question, like, how can I uh, become more virtual? The problem is when you are asking for ideas, you get a lot of just sort of wasted energy in the whole system and so to me the key is to recognize that it really is all about the problem it's about the question and that to me at the end of the day is the concept behind challenge centered innovations don't start with the idea start with the question a well-framed question and ideally a differentiating question something which is going to create the greatest level of value for the organization because you can't be the best at everything so figure out where you can be best where you should be best, where you need to be best to stand out from others. And you put your energies there because you're gonna get a much greater return.
0: You have a great quick example in the book about baggage claim and how an airport solved that problem. Could you tell us just real quickly about that?
1: I'll tell you the, the short version of the story. I love, this is, this is one of my favorites, especially now that we're not traveling. It sort of gives me glee because sometimes travel is not as glamorous as it all sounds. But I, you know, I've been on the road a lot as a speaker, probably about 150 days a year is certainly not atypical. And anybody who's traveled knows that the allotments for carry-on luggage has gotten so small that in most cases, we're going to have to check bags. And Mary, I don't know if you're like I am, but you get off of a long flight, you just want to get home or get to your hotel, sitting at baggage claim is like torture. So one of the airports in the US, yeah, it's like, oh, it's like, okay, we just had a long flight and now you're going to make it even longer. So one of the airports did a quick analysis, and they found that it took their bags, took 15 to 20 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. And so they decided to solve the problem, how can we speed up the bags? And they spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, newer technology, got it from 15 to 20 minutes down to eight to 10 minutes. So they cut it in half, thinking everybody's going to be happy, and they can now move on to the next problem. Unfortunately, people were still disappointed. And they knew they couldn't go any faster without breaking the bank. And then they had an epiphany, which was that it took the bags eight to 10 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel, but it only took the passengers one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, what do you think they did, Mary?
0: I know the answer because (laughs) I read your book. I'll let you show that. They slowed
1: down the passengers. They literally reconfigured the airport so that it would take on average eight to 10 minutes for the passengers to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. They get to the baggage carousel. Their bags are waiting people are happy, but that's really just the start of the story. We could really spend an entire day using this one example of how we can reframe because we went from how do we speed up bags when in fact the question might have been how do we reduce wait time? Speed of bags and wait time sound the same, but actually wait time is speed of bags and speed of passengers. But if we spend all our time trying to speed up bags, we never think to slow down passengers. The questions we ask are so powerful and we can change one or two words in the problem statement to get a different range of questions. So instead of how do we reduce wait time, we could change it to how can we improve the wait experience? Two words, fundamentally different range of solutions. And also we start looking in different places because if I'm going to create a great wait experience, I live in Orlando, Florida, the place where people pay until COVID $100 a day to wait in line and they're hungry to wait in line again. They were looking forward to that day. So if we're going to learn, we don't even go to people in our industry. We go to others like theme parks to better understand the best ideas.
0: It sounds like a simple example but as you mentioned it's actually more complex but when you listen to the difference that just a couple of words in the question makes it seems like a palm slap to the forehead simple solution but the bottom line is the questions that we ask make a difference and I totally agree with you in in that respect that we need to ask careful questions in order to get to the best solutions Let's switch over for a minute since you mentioned COVID and the fact that we're in such unusual times. The first step in John Kotter's change model is to create a sense of urgency. And that has happened for us now. We don't have to create the sense of urgency, it's been created for us. So let's talk a little bit about how reactive innovation is different than proactive and how we can harness more proactive going forward, even based on what we're learning now as we innovate on the fly? It's challenging.
1: Proactive innovation is challenging because it has to really be led by somebody who has vision to understand that what worked in the past won't work in the future. In the financial markets, they always, you, you watch the TV commercials always say, past success is no guarantee of future success. My perspective is past success is a pretty good predictor of future failure because what worked in the past will not work in the future at some point whether it's tomorrow because of a pandemic or in a year's time because of a new technology or maybe there's new business models out there. So it really is up to the leader to not give people the answers. And I think this is the really important thing is people seem to think that leaders have to have the answers and that's not the case. Leaders have to have questions that get everybody else to ask better questions. That to me is a really good leader. And part of that is going to be that sense of urgency through the conversation, getting people to feel the sense of urgency for themselves rather than it being beat over their head. The reason why things are happening now is because it's personal. There's always been a, we used the expression years ago, burning platform for all organizations, but it didn't mean people inside the organization felt, it. but now when you're on furlough or when you can't go into office and you need to go virtual, well, that created a sense of urgency for every individual. It reminds me of what happened in 1978. Where are you from originally, Mary? Started in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Fort Wayne, Indiana. Middle of the country. There you go. Well, I I don't know if you remember, but in the Northeast, in 1978, we had a blizzard. And it was a terrible blizzard. And I remember it well, because we had four feet of snow in Boston. And in New York City, the city basically shut down. And At that time, Citibank was rolling out the ATM machine. Now, we all take it for granted now that we've got ATM machines everywhere and that's where we get cash. In fact, it might be the only place to get cash at the moment. Well, they were rolling out the ATM machines. Nobody wanted them. Nobody was interested in the ATM machine because it wasn't personal. They wanted to talk to their teller. And then the blizzard of 78 hit New York City. No one could get cash anywhere from an ATM machine. And all of a sudden, basically, the use of the ATM machine went through the roof. And we're seeing the same thing now. You know, Zoom has been around, but Virtual technologies have been around. I mean, they've been around for 25 years. Webex was built in 1995. It's used, not used the way that it is today. Zoom's market cap, I just checked this morning, is larger than United Airlines, American Airlines, Delta, and JetBlue combined. Wow. $40 billion market cap because of this. So we just need to recognize that, yes, these events create urgency, but there are also ways to continue it going. And I'll just close this part with... The way we create urgency is to recognize when we aren't solving problems, people don't feel the pain. So we need to actually talk to people's pains. What's the pain that somebody has? And if we solve those problems, adoption will be much higher.
0: Well, and when you speak to people about their pain, innovation becomes clearer and easier because you're identifying a real world problem that's looking for a real world solution. Uh, If you're innovating just to innovate, the need may or may not be there. And sometimes you don't know how the market will respond until you actually roll it out. But if the market is telling you we have this pain and we have this problem, help us, that's a platform to start from, at least to create a sense of urgency because the need is already there. As you know, I work exclusively with associations and they have been hit very, very hard because of all the meeting cancellations and the fact that we don't know when face-to-face meetings will be allowed or appreciated again. So what advice do you have for association professionals as they move forward in an environment that changed very quickly? You know, you've mentioned a couple of things in terms of asking the right questions, making sure that there's a real need there. But if you were going to talk to a group of association professionals, what would you tell them? Well, I think there's a few things.
1: First of all, we need to recognize that change in these types of situations tends to go in waves. And I would say that the first wave is doing anything and everything we can to deal with the current situation. But I do think that at some point, maybe 18 months from now or 12 months, can't tell you exactly when, but we're gonna have a second wave of innovation. And it's gonna look different than this first wave. This first wave was, as you used the term reactionary, I would say it was built out of necessity and urgency, which isn't always the best innovation. So we need to be thinking, like I'm talking with a lot of people about the world of virtual, for example. And most people are thinking of the world of virtual now, the world of virtual tomorrow and for the next couple of months. And I'm thinking of the world of virtual for two years from now. When we are meeting face-to-face, what are the advantages of virtual? So I would say for associations, first of all, recognize what is the purpose of an association? What is your differentiator association? What can you do that no one else can? And make sure you're focusing there. Innovate where you differentiate. I would also say when it comes to meetings, rethink your meetings. I think the concept of meetings has been broken for a long time right now. And if we step back and start asking better questions about the purpose of a meeting, what do we need to do face-to-face live? And I don't mean in person, like we're sitting in the same room, but when we're sitting next to each other, virtually next to each other on a Zoom call, many of our meetings do not need to happen real-time. They could happen before the meeting. They could happen asynchronously. What can we do to create conversations that happen in between meetings? And so if we move away from this event mindset, which is what most associations and most companies think about, to a process mindset where it starts with something and it continues over a longer period of time, we find we get significantly more value. In the virtual world, from my experience, my clients get much, much greater value when they engage in the virtual world in ways that actually work rather than the simply trying to automate what we did in person.
0: You were one of the first people to come out with some thoughts about how we can capitalize on and harness what's happening virtually. In fact, you have a five-step process that you're using with your clients that I think would be helpful to others. Would you mind walking us through that? Sure. So the the five-step
1: process, look, it's super simple, but it really does work. The first one is Before the event, it's sort of the kickoff and it's not even an event necessarily. So sometimes it is, but in many cases, it's a video. Think about the last time you saw somebody give a speech. I mean, you and I see a lot of speakers. Uh, (laughs) 90% of the speech could have been recorded and watched. So why are we making people sit in a Zoom room or on WebEx or whatever platform you're using, watching someone deliver something that could have been delivered via video? Deliver that up front let's give people the ability to watch what they want to watch when they want to watch it at their own convenience and rewatch it. Maybe there's an assessment. Maybe there's something that happens beforehand that will then, when we get people together in step two, which is the live meeting, virtual or in person, we're maximizing people's time. We're respecting people's time. And we focus on the interactive experiences that can only take place when we're live versus delivering content that could be done in a book or a video. The third step is What happens in between after the first meeting and before the next one. And what I do for my clients is I create a custom website with a password protection on it, where we put videos, tools, documents, templates, and other things that they can download. I create a customized email address where people can write me, where they can ask questions. And we give them an exercise, something that's going to take them maybe 30, 60 days to do, whether it's practicing using the tools, whether it's solving real world problems. And they do that. So that's step three. Step four is the debrief meeting where we reflect on what happened over the last 60 days. And then the last step is a tool we developed years ago called the 30 day innovation challenge, which is a mobile game, which keeps people learning with only two minutes a day. And people love it because it's engaging. It's fun and you're competing against people in the room that you are studying with. So it's a five-step process. That's simple, but it really does create huge amounts of impact.
0: Gosh, that alone, just that framework is excellent food for thought for all association professionals because we truly have an opportunity to transform how we gather people how we get them connected and how we help them do their best work and like you said we don't have to be face to face in the same room co-located to do great work and it doesn't always happen in the confines of a single meeting. So uh, thank you for your generosity and sharing that. And I know that I've been influenced by your writing and what you're doing. So personally, I offer you a thanks too. So as we wrap up here, Stephen, what are one or two mantras that you come back to time and time again, when it comes to innovation, that would be helpful for listeners going forward?
1: I'll give you two. One is, you know, we use the word, or the expression, think outside the box a lot. And you know, as we discussed earlier, when we ask these big, broad, abstract questions, like how do we go virtual, we invite a lot of big, broad, abstract solutions, wasted solutions. So you don't wanna think outside the box, you wanna find a better box. The better box is, instead of speeding up the bags, slowing down the passengers, instead of reducing wait time, maybe it's improving the wait experience. The other one is, expertise is the enemy of innovation. And it comes back to what worked in the past, may not work in the future. And therefore, if we surround ourselves with experts in our industry or our area of uh, expertise, we will probably only come up with solutions that are incrementally better than the past. But when we surround ourselves with people from other industries, other disciplines, other functions, we tend to develop better, bigger breakthroughs.
0: So we really need to get outside of our own four walls and get outside of our industry space. Absolutely.
1: Associations should be looking to not other associations but outside the association world just as as a speaker i'm learning my best concepts not from other speakers but from other disciplines
0: and that's exactly why we brought you in here today Stephen, to help us think about things from a for-profit point of view which you come from and to encourage us to help us find a better box so thank you for being here today my pleasure i'm mary byers and this is successful associations today